0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit
1: knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Anyone that has had the frustration of seeing our government fail time and time again may have had the thought that maybe we should have a CEO type running our government. Well, here you go. OK, so maybe Mr. Trump might not have been your ideal candidate, but it does beg the question, can you run the government like a business to try and answer that question? We welcome in Morton's Peter Conti Brown, assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics, and also Philip Joyce, senior associate dean and professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. Peter, great to see you again. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Philip. Great to have you joining the show.
2: Uh, Thanks. It's good to be with you.
1: Thank you. Okay. I'll I'll throw the hard question out there first, Phil. Can you run the government like a business?
2: Well, I don't think you can just uh, decide that if you were a successful business executive that uh, all of the things that you did are necessarily transferable to the government sector. And I think if you attempt to run government precisely like uh, a business, then you're going to find yourself relatively frustrated.
1: Peter? I
0: agree. I think that that the instinct that to want to have uh, market structures, incentive-based compensation, uh, command and control kind of uh, uh, approaches to government as we see in business can come from anyone who's gone and spent too much time at the DMV, right? It's like, oh, this is miserable. <laughs> if, I were, if this were privately run, this would be very different. But, but virtually nothing about the architecture of government in the United States or in other places corresponds to that model. Your interactions with Congress, your interactions with the public, with foreign countries, uh, the entire uh, fiscal dynamic, budgetary dynamics differ widely between uh, public sector and private sector. And so to to anyone who simply says, oh, this is an easy problem to which there's an easy solution, that solution is just hire a CEO – uh, has not grasped the nature of either problem or solution.
1: So it, it needs to be then, Phil, maybe a little bit of a mix. I mean, there are obviously it feels like there are certain elements that you can take a business approach to, but it can't be a one hundred percent kind of all in philosophy.
2: Right. Well, and I think I mean I think it's actually interesting that that Peter raises the DMV because you know the, the DMV is actually. Uh, have been in many places quite focused on trying to increase customer service and they've been trying to do things like maybe even be open at times when you know people are not working as opposed to when people yeah. are working yeah. and you know have people uh move more efficiently through systems i think that's the kind of thing that may be amenable to uh some kind of uh private sector techniques and governments also do things that are that are similar in some cases uh you know they run utility companies they uh you know in in some states they sell liquor i mean all of those things you know we think could be amenable to uh practices from the private sector but there are lots of things that governments do that governments do because private firms would not do them uh and because they would not find it profitable to uh to do them and you know if i'm the postal service it's actually not profitable for me or not efficient for me to deliver mail to far flung places but i have to do it anyway uh a private firm would not do that or would figure out how to charge people you know a cost that would be sufficient to or a price that would be sufficient to recoup their costs. So there, so government as the sort of provider of last resort has to do a lot of things that private firms either can't or would not do.
1: Well, and part of that is, if you're a government, you're looking out for the concerns and the welfare of your millions of, uh, of citizens. Right. Whereas the business, they are realistically focused on the bottom line and being the best company financially that they that they can possibly be.
2: Well, and they should be i mean that's you know go- i mean businesses operate in the interest of the people who they buy and who buy and sell things with them that's who they sell things to and also the interests of their shareholders but you know the shareholders of the united states government or a united states government agency are all of the citizens and we can't simply decide that we want to ignore some of them
0: right peter i think that's right i mean you can you can break this question into a lot of different pieces one is to is a philosophical concern this is motivated uh, debates about what government is or should be for for centuries um, which is you know what what is government on one hand people would think well it's coercion on the other hand it's just the name that we give to the, the work that we do together right and that's a big philosophical ideological difference another is just what is competence? What is successful management? Yeah. Um, the DMV examples, other kinds of examples. How do we uh, motivate public employees? Can you do it in a way that is similar to motivations used by by private firms? Could you have to have uh, more public de-unionization in order to make that effective? And those kinds of debates, I think, are appropriately uh, more in the weeds, more technical. And so anyone who's saying who viscerally resists the idea that you can use insights from uh... from organizational behavior private management apply them to government i think is also missing the mark right. um, but uh... the the question is where are we going at the at the big ideological level to simply equate the provision of services and say that anytime it is done by the public sector it is going to be uh... inefficient or corrupt uh... is again that's 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 too simple
1: so where do well, you th- and I, go if ahead. If I could
2: jump in just quickly, yep. but I think the other thing is that, and I'm really glad that, that Peter raised this point, is that I think people conflate how well government operates with the question of whether they think government should do something or not. And the question of whether government should do something or not is basically a political question. You know, the question that really we should be confronting is once we have decided that government is going to do something, how can we sort of set it up so that it does it most effectively? And that's completely separate from the question of whether you believe the government should be in the business of supporting the arts or you know, or, or uh, subsidizing Amtrak or anything else where there are perfectly reasonable debates on both sides about whether something is an appropriate role for government or not.
0: And Philip's point here is so key because, because of that conflation, what we have is a rerun of existential debates. Anytime we have on cue a discussion about competence and strategy. Sure, uh, and this is as a historian, I can say this is something that has just come up time and time again. Uh, the 1928 election, for example, was seen very much as an election of competence. It was a question about Herbert Hoover, who was seen as this great businessman, great bureaucrat from previous administrations in the private and public sector. He who had delivered food and relieved the great famine after uh, after World War One. Uh, it was the rise of competence. Right. Hoover, interestingly, in 1960, after a uh, 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 much later uh, helping to, to uh, uh, devise strategies about how to make government more efficient, we saw this, that was Al Gore's pet project after the 1992 election as vice president. The idea of trying to make government more streamlined by bringing insights into business is a very old one. But again, as Philip points out, because people fail to distinguish between those two questions, a first-order and a second-order question, we just have the same relatively tired debates about whether government should be in a business at all, yeah. even though that's not the question that's there. No one is saying take government out of, uh, of the provision of Medicare – of, of, uh, of health care completely, right? right? But the debates about how the government
1: should do it become a fight about that. Sure. And it can be very frustrating. We're joined in the studio by Peter Conde-Brown, uh, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School, and also, by the way, the author of the upcoming book, The Supreme Court of Finance, The Rise and Rise of the Federal Reserve. And also joining us on the phone, Philip Joyce, a Senior Associate Dean at the University of Maryland and Professor of Public Policy. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 942 Do you think that you can run The U.S. government, like a business, we pose that question to you, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. So in terms of changes and change in philosophy, Phil, what do you think needs to occur? Because obviously going into this, this new administration, one of the kind of key words that has been bandied about a lot is deregulation.
2: Well, I think that, you know, regulations exist. I mean, one of the things that we need to understand is that regulations exist for a reason. And, uh, you know, and those reasons have to do with implementing particular policies or laws that have been passed by by the Congress. So, you know, I, I think that the question of whether we should have fewer regulations, we should go back to the question of what the regulations are there in order to try to accomplish. And if, for example, we think we have too many environmental regulations, well, that goes back to laws that have been passed that led to those environmental regulations. And it's back to the point we were making earlier. If we want to have a debate about whether that's a reasonable thing to do for government to do, that's a reasonable debate to have. But once that we have decided government to do is going to do that, it's not a particular surprise that that then results in regulation.
0: Peter? Yeah, there's there's something about this deregulatory phenomenon that is is so interesting in the, in its rhetorical strategy. So deregulation, the field that I know best, which is, is uh, financial regulation, is rarely the elimination of regulation. Sure. And much more often the replacement of regulation, so right. a re-regulation. Um, and, and often that re-regulation is just oriented toward a different coalition uh not it's not as quite as clean as this but sometimes regulation that occurs is seen as uh, uh more hostile to industry a quote-unquote deregulatory movement is a re-regulatory orientation toward industry but that's a very important idea it's not a, it's seen as we want to eliminate irregulation, want to reduce regulation, right. uh, that has rarely if ever occurred in our national history. It's much more about rewriting regulations and moving them in a different place. And those regulatory strategies can bring out the worst of business. Business isn't simply about uh, fierce competitors in the marketplace uh, fighting for supremacy in the best uh, and brightest and most successful will win. Sometimes it's about cozy relationships, sometimes it's about right. increasing barriers to entry for your competitors, sometimes right. it's about um, dirty tricks, savage ploys. And <laughs> the problem is is that government can function in a very similar way. There have been Nobel prizes awarded for uh the basic economic insight that uh that People in the marketplace will use government to their ends, yeah. um, and will seek to capture that mechanism in order to make their uh, business interests more protected.
1: Hence, the world world of the lobbyist,
0: and hence the world of the lobbyist, and hence the extraordinary outlay of of uh, resources by industry in order to guide uh, both regulatory and legislative processes. So, so I think there are a, a number of things at play there, but one of them is just to really understand that um, that. It is a rhetorical strategy to say – and Democrats and Republicans alike have done this – we're going to pull regulations back and liberate industry. Very often what happens instead is that we're going to change the orientation of regulation and citizens should be very wary uh, to note how that orientation change occurs who benefits and who doesn't.
1: One of the comments I, I read uh, the other day, Phil, uh, is interesting to get your opinion on it, was that, that government, uh, a little bit unlike business, has a harder time reshaping itself. Do you agree with that?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, there, there is uh, uh, there's a famous political scientist, if that's not an oxymoron, uh, <laughs> named uh, Aaron Waldowski, who studied the federal budget process and Uh, And his uh, his sort of key insight was that the best predictor of next year's budget is this year's budget. Uh, And you know, so what happens in government is that we have developed a consensus around a particular allocation of resources in a particular year. And absent some major uh, event that changes that, you know, you're not going to see a huge shift from one year to another. All of those coalitions that that. Grew up around whatever that consensus was last year. By and large, they're still there, and it's very difficult to uh, to make changes. And in fact, that goes back to our constitutional structure. You know, I like to remind my students that our system of government was not set up to promote change. It was mm-hmm. not set up to promote good things happening. It was set up to prevent bad things from happening. And so this this idea that uh, that i think we actually as a country are pretty well behind which is the idea of checks and balances the flip side of checks and balances is gridlock uh, you know, and so people say gridlock when there's a change that they wanted to see made and it wasn't made, but they say checks and balances when the change is something that they don't really agree with. And so it is very difficult to get things done. And, you know, the new, the, there is a sort of common belief out there that because we have, uh, the, 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 uh, Machine of government now completely under the control of the Republican Party. That means that they're going to be able to get anything done they want to, and it's not quite that simple.
0: Peter, yeah, I mean, this is—I uh, completely agree with uh, with Philip's description of it. And it's, it's question begging in a sense. Is this a good system? Right. Many, yeah. many other governmental systems. Right. Watching the U.S. constitutional structure in its uh, uh, tripartite division of of power and yep. a bicameral. Cameral, legislative uh, basis with uh, significant congressional and presidential uh, skirmishes around a variety of different uh, policies have lo- taken a close look at this and said, that's not for us. And have opted right. instead for parliamentary systems where legislative and executive are, 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 are much closer uh, aligned. Um, and uh, uh, Philip can speak to this more authoritatively, but the political science literature on this is is not clear about which systems empirically are better. That's hard to measure. We don't <laughs> right have a lot of, uh, you know, our our, our uh, sample sizes is relatively restricted, and it makes it difficult to make apples to apples comparisons. But but those who would celebrate the U.S. Constitution, which is basically every politician ever,
1: uh, <laughs>
0: needs to sta- need to take a step back and say, well, you know, this checks and balances gridlock thing it produces certain kinds of outcomes. Are those the best kinds of outcomes? Right. Um right. and it is a an ultimate democratic check and balance of regular elections sufficient? To guide a national system towards uh, different kinds of goals, and that's a hard question to answer. I'm not saying that the constitutional system is a bad one or right. an inferior one. <laughs> I'm just saying that that's a question that we shouldn't take for granted uh, when we're when we're celebrating uh, the, the the very uh, unusual design of the U.S. government. Phil, but
2: it but it does go back to the the precise question that we started with, which is the question of running government like a business so let's imagine that you're somebody moving into a cabinet department to run a cabinet department you are going to be managing in the system we have yeah and the the system we have is a system where there's all this fragmentation of power where it's not a hierarchy where you don't have control over over your budgetary resources or indeed even knowledge of what your budgetary resources are the the federal government is right now operating under a continuing resolution which is a short-term appropriation that expires at the end of april At the end of April, that will be seven months into the fiscal year. They have no idea what changes President-elect Trump and the Republican Congress are going to make to their budgets. So imagine a business executive that was trying to operate in an environment like that, where there was not only not any certainty about what your resources were going to be next year or the year after, but not even any certainty about what the resources were that you were going to have in the fiscal year that you are currently in.
1: Right. But that, but that's something that I think most people getting into government have to realize that that that's that's the way it's been forever, and it's right. going to be the, the way that it's going to be forever. I mean, it, th- some of the core things that that how government run run are not going to change a- any time in our lifetimes.
2: Well, I, you know, I, but to me, the lesson I would take from this is that. Rather than thinking that you're going to bring people in from the private sector, and somehow because you're bringing them in from the private sector, Everything about the way the government operates is going to change. Right. You should ask the question what are the self inflicted wounds about the operation of government right now that is preventing government from operating in a sort of optimal fashion? And, you know, this is my own hobby horse because I've written about this, but, you know, to me, when members of Congress sort of decry the inefficiency of government, but only four times in the last 41 years have they been able to pass appropriation bills on time, mm-hmm. I would suggest they look in the mirror before <laughs> yeah. they start pointing yeah. to why it is that government agencies don't operate efficiently.
1: Well, and hence why I started off this segment by saying that you know people are dealing with the frustration of government failing time and time again. I mean, it's, it's become – and trust me, Phil, in the last two and a half years that we've been doing this show on Sirius XM, I would venture a guess – uh, it has to be at least 50 or 60 times, and that may be even low, the number of times where we have dis- discussed in some fashion government failing to do the job that it needs to do. Right. And,
0: and let's, what's so interesting about this is that when we talk about government as a, as, a, as a singular, right, it's important to remember that the way that citizens perceive governmental failure – Uh, is, is talking about just a multitude of interactions on the municipal level, the state level, the federal level. And if we're talking about the federal level in a variety of different contexts, so, if you're a Louisiana fisherman and the EPA has uh, limited your ability to uh, navigate, uh, you, know, you know wetlands or something like that, then your beef with government is going to be very specific, and it might have something to do with, as 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 Phil said, legislation passed in 1970, right? Right, where there's not discretion really being exercised. It's very clear. You are in plain, straightforward violation of law in a way that is harming us all. So it's a it's a way that when you're angry at the government for limiting your freedom, yeah. what you're actually seeing is you are making your you know polluting the the watershed in a way that hurts the rest of us. Um, but that that anger feeds into the same person who's saying. You know, I just spent five hours at the DMV and I didn't get done what I wanted (laughs) to the same person who's saying the government caused the financial crisis to the person who says, you know, what even happened with the uh, the BP oil spill? That was a government failure. And conflating all of those concerns, which is just what happens in a democratic process. We don't have individual referenda on each individual policy. Thank God for that. But because we don't, that all of that gets swirled together in a common ideology when the problems have virtually nothing to do with each other and sometimes aren't even problems. And yeah. that, that makes it really hard to navigate. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I would add one more thing, which is that, you know, let's just look at the federal government for a second. Leave state and local governments out of this. If you were to add up the, you know, the the costs of Social Security, Medicare, and the defense budget, you're accounting at that point for two thirds or more of the federal budget. Those are three things that are actually quite popular. Yeah. Those are three things that that citizens actually think the government should be doing, and by and large, thinks that the government does well. So I think we also can't paint government with this sort of broad brush as if uh, the the citizenry is opposed to all things that government does or thinks that everything that government does are, are things that are done badly, because there's a lot of things that government uh, does that are actually, actually have quite a bit of support from the citizens, or where right. citizens think that government does it pretty well.
1: Yeah. How, how closely, then, if you're looking at what taxpayers are in general and then kind of correlating to the business end of things, what shareholders are, how closely aligned are they in some of these instances, Phil? Uh,
2: I'm, I'm sorry, repeat the question. I'm not sure I understand. The question.
1: Well, I mean, if you think of what taxpayers go through in dealing with the government right. And the and the say that they do or do not have – and you compare that with what a shareholder of a company can or cannot do in terms of, of you know affecting path of, right. of of a of a of a corporate structure how closely aligned are they in this in this whole process
2: well i mean i would think that you know i am a, i am a small shareholder in a few uh, corporations and i don't think i have much say at all because i'm not one of the big shareholders right so i think individual taxpayers you know we don't we do not have a a, a system of government where we make decisions based on some uh, big town hall meeting that we all have we have representative government So the way that taxpayers are able to influence government is through their elected officials, and so that is, and through interest groups that influence their elected officials. So the the capacity for an individual taxpayer, unless they're somebody who has a lot of clout, you know, and gives a lot of campaign contributions, is probably not all that great. But I would argue that an individual shareholder unless they're a major shareholder and, and Pierre can speak to this because I'm, I'm, this is not my area of expertise yeah. probably doesn't have that much influence either.
0: Right. I, I think that the shareholder taxpayer, uh, parallel breaks down pretty quickly uh, on scrutiny, yep. uh, in part because of the, these kinds of issues that, that Phillips identifying. Uh, and also where I'm, I'm a, uh, a shareholder in thousands of corporations and, uh, the share, the, uh, organization that represents my interests is a large shareholder, sometimes the largest because I'm I have I just buy index funds right? Sure, not, yeah. Uh, so Vanguard is representing my interests to these companies and Vanguard doesn't really represent those interests because they're invested sure, in everything, yeah. right? Yeah. Um uh, they'll vote proxies, et cetera. But they're they're again they're looking at the at the market system wide. The better analogy perhaps might be voter as opposed to taxpayer. Okay. Because um yeah. we don't you know taxpaying is a, a phenomenon that in the tax system is riddled with uh, all kinds of uh, different exceptions, exemptions, loopholes, different maneuvers and that kind of thing. Uh, tax policy has become social policy in an extraordinary extent. But uh, citizen voters uh, and sometimes even citizen non-voters, the key there in influencing government is by yeah. capturing the public attention uh, and then making our representatives within that government make your cause their own.
1: Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Phelps. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to have you. Peter Cotty Brown of the Wharton School, Philip Joyce, the University of Maryland. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.